0: You're listening to the Be the Bridge podcast with Latasha Morrison. I cannot believe this. We have the one and only Mrs. Lisa Sharon Harper,
1: <laughs> although I like to call her
0: Auntie Lisa. How you doing? Oh,
1: that's so much better. I actually let me just say, unless I got married to Jesus recently, I'm a Ms. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I guess I like, yeah, am. My, my kind of married Jesus back when I jumped the broom with, with him, you know, when I was uh-huh, uh-huh. but you know, I'm, I'm a Yeah. Yes. But thank, you.
0: yes. I, I, thank you. I love yes, it. Auntie Lisa. I love that.
1: I love that.
0: Yeah. You know, that's how we do, you know, <laughs> but I just want to tell you guys a little bit about who. Um, Lisa Sharon Harper is. She is the founder and president of Freedom Road. And it, this is a groundbreaking consulting group that crafts experiences that bring common understanding and common commitments that lead to common action toward a more just world. Um, Lisa is a public theologian whose writing, speaking, activism, and training has sparked and fed the fires of uh, reformation in the church from Ferguson, Charlottesville. To South Africa, Brazil, Australia, and Ireland. Oh, my goodness. Um, Lisa's book, The Very Good Gospel, if you don't have it, you must get it, was named 2016 Book of the Year. And the Huffington Post identified Lisa as one of the 50 women religious leaders to celebrate on International Women's Day.
1: Wow. Well, thank you so much. I'm honored that you even thought of me. Um, It has literally been, I think for everybody concerned, um, it's been an incredibly disorienting and at the same time, um, profound experience to have to go Mm -hmm. into hibernation um, as we have over the last couple of months. I want you, I I read your bio, but I Mm -hmm. really want the
0: audience to know who you are, uh, what makes you who you are and how Mm -hmm. long you've been doing this work. And Mm -hmm. then we can jump into that.
1: Okay, well, I mean that's that in itself is a is a is a question. Well, whenever I talk about who I am, I find it impossible to talk about who I am, uh, you know, and try to explain that without also going into my family history, because I think that we we literally like our actual DNA is our ancestors. Like our ancestors are actually walking and moving in today's world through us. Um, because we are actually in reality, their DNA. And so, and that's really become really um, amazing to me to consider as I've been writing my next book, which is called fortune and God willing, it'll be coming out next year. Um, and in 2021, But for mm-hmm. that book, I did a ton. I basically drew on about 30 years of family history research that I started with my mom back in 1990. And, um, uh, and then it really has been going ever since then. And in the last decade or so since the advent of or the, the popularization of Ancestry.com, um, boy, I just boom. I mean, that just, it just exploded my research because so much wow. is available to us now online. But what I found about who I am is that I am, if you look at my DNA, I am a map of the slave trade. Boom. Mm. Like, that's what I am. I'm a map of the slave trade in my DNA. And that is not just in terms of Africa, but also Europe, several nations in Europe. Um, it's also a map of uh, of the the colonization of the world. And in particular, um, I didn't even know this was the case, but it turns out that um, while oral history does say, tell us that we Um, have a connection to indigenous nations here in the United States. And my uncle was adamant and my auntie is adamant and my mom is adamant that those, the three nations that we are connected to are Cherokee, Chickasaw, and Creek. Um, uh, The reality is that the majority of the indigenous DNA in my blood that I just found out is actually from South America, And so, right. And that comes on. Now I know who that's from my dad's side because my dad, his side is um, from the Caribbean. And um, well, yeah, from the Caribbean, um, French and British Guyana, um, Jamaica on my grandmother's side, on my dad's side, and then also from Puerto Rico. uh, But but ultimately, that line stretches back to St. Louis, St. Louis, sorry, St. Lucia, St. Kitts, my bad, St. Kitts and um, Nieves. And then, also, and then ultimately to Africa, most likely Nigeria. And so, um, yeah, so, I mean, we've done all the DNA. Like, I know that yeah. the majority of my, my DNA is actually my black DNA on my mother's side, going all the way back, you know, the matrilineal line is Yoruba and, um, um, Yoruba and Hausa. And I learned about those people and the Hausa are in northern Nigeria. The Yoruba is mostly in western and southern Nigeria. And, but it's, it's one of the largest nations, largest uh, tribes, I think, on the continent, Europa, and definitely in Nigeria. And I, I mean, so, so doing that research helps me to know who I am, right? So Why? it makes sense then. It makes sense that going down through our family history, I find out that my mom's, on my mom's line, they had actually been free living in the South, in Virginia, since mm. 1705. Um, You know, 1715, I think. And then from that point forward, they were indentured and and then and then finally set completely free by about 1745. But that meant that they were they were navigating a particular a very particular kind of racialized experience um, Mm -hmm. in the South for a century before actually a century and some years before the Civil War. And, and then I had enslaved family from also from my mother's line, in the, in the South, um, South Carolina, Virginia, Kentucky, and also if you count DNA. And some family story, Georgia and Alabama as well. So I know that on her line, they were enslaved. And, and they had another particular story. And other people in my family, my great-grandmother ran north during the Great Migration. And so what does it take? Mm-hmm. First of all, what's the terror that she had to experience for her to run? And what kind of chutzpah, right? did it take <laughs> for you to leave everything behind in order to right. find a better life for yourself and your children. Like, that's in me. She, that, she's in me. Um, and my mom was a, a, a part of the civil rights movement. She was a member of SNCC. Um, I, mean, I joke, but it's true. She dated Stokely Carmichael for a hot minute, right? Like, she was that deep <laughs> in. She was that deep into the movement, right? But Your mama's you mama civil rights. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, just for that reason, right? So actually, she and Ruby Sales... Um, our, our, friends because they met each other in the movement, um, uh, during the summer of 66 wow. at a training in Atlanta and, wow. um, yeah. And then my mom went back to Philadelphia and helped to run the Philadelphia office as a teenager. She was literally 17 or 18 years old, wow. helping to wow. run that office. Like she was, and was trained by Jim Lawson or no, not Jim Lawson, Jim, uh, uh director of core, um, Farmer, James Farmer, um, you know, trained by him to do outreach to the church. So she was doing church outreach in the movement. And here I am, like, what's really what I did at Sojourners for six years. And I didn't even know that that's what she did at the office. And that's what I was doing. So that's what I'm saying. Our ancestors are in us. And I think really literally guide our, our path. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, how I came to where I am now, that was already in me. But I found Jesus through um, an evangelical stream. I found Jesus um, in Cape May, New Jersey, in the context of young life, I believe. It was always called Mm -hmm. Why, and I never knew to this day, I'm not sure if it was the letter Y or the word Y. (laughs) Nobody, (laughs) nobody ever explained that. (laughs) But but given what they did and how they operated, I kind of understand now. I think it was Young Life and um, because it was an area wide youth group that kind of was a compilation of multiple youth groups in in the area. And um, yeah, so I found Jesus through that, through Young Life. And then you know, wow. was discipled in the Wesleyan church for a year before moving over to a Methodist church that had a larger youth group and, and, and then Campus Crusade. And it was in that context that I think God broke through because it's not the normal experience, but in that context, in Campus Crusade, I went on my very first urban project in New York city. It was their second ever urban project, Here's Life Inner City. And um, and that's where I was introduced to the God who sees and loves Black people, and mm. um, and I'd never even had the question before, but when I when I was confronted with that reality, I realized it was a new reality for me, and that meant that God and see, sees and loves me, and um, and I came back. That was my junior year, the summer between my junior and senior year. When I came back, my senior year into Campus Crusade, I started. Uh, I started uh, kind of ho- playing hooky on Campus Crusade and started hanging out with the group called Are You with the Homeless? And they were the first group. My first activist experience. We we literally opened a homeless shelter on like right off campus. Students opened a homeless shelter, and my contribution wow. to it because I was the worship leader um, at our in our fellowship. Was to bring uh, this like our worship team down to the shelter, and they let me do this. This secular group let me do this every Sunday, to lead the the homeless folks in worship, and so like that was kind of my earliest years. And then I graduated and went to New York City, worked off Broadway because I was a theater person. Um, And, uh, and in that context began to really kind of delve into my family history after watching Dances with Wolves (laughs) and crying through the whole thing so that my eyes were like golf balls with slits in them because they were so puffed up at the end. It was really scary to look at myself. But I realized by watching that movie, I met a part of myself that I never even knew really existed. And then I started doing research into family history to find out more about that. And then it just took off after that. So, you know, I, I ended up spending 10 years on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in Greater LA and was their director of racial reconciliation for the last five years that I was in Greater LA. And then my last year on staff with InterVarsity, I was the specialist in in racial reconciliation for all of Southern California before going back to grad school and getting my master's in human rights. Because I said, you know, I need to know how systems work. I need to know Mm -hmm the pilgrimage that I took that is talked about in my book um, convinced me, okay, so you know a little bit about race, but you really don't know. <laughs> right, you don't know right. how, how, how did this all happen? How was race constructed? How is it still working in society today besides cultural difference, which is where we were really focused? Um, and that's that's where most of the church, the evangelical church tends to focus Is on cultural competence on, you know, what, what, what worship music are you going to (laughs) sing on Sunday morning? Right. That's when (laughs) we'll always land and get stuck. What they don't realize is that race is at race and culture are two different things. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then there's ethnicity and nationality. And that we talked about in chapter nine of my book, the very good gospel. And so I went back and got my master's degree in human rights. And it was there that I began to understand the impact of law and that we really can't understand race until we understand the law and how it works and when, when different Mm. things were instituted and and which of those laws have been dismantled and which have been shape shifted into different, into various ages. So, you know, I think the greatest example of that, and I'll, 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 let, I'll take a breath. But the, the greatest example of that that we have been given in the last um, decade or so is uh, through Michelle Alexander's book, The, the New Jim Crow, yeah, where she yeah. really goes back into the history of Jim Crow and helps us to see how our current system of mass incarceration is literally just a legalized structure yeah. of peonage um, mm-hmm. which was a, a construct created during Jim Crow where they lowered the bar of criminality in order to do a mass sweep of black male bodies and, right. and put them back on the plantations they had just been freed from in the latter part of the 19th century. And when that became outlawed in the early, early 20th century, um, they just re-envisioned it um, starting in the 1970s. They began to re-envision um, peonage yeah. In order, to, in order to build up the South, really, in order to build right. up the economic viability of the South. They just, that, that economy necess- necessarily, at least according to the mindset of the people who run it, depends on free or cheap labor. So mm. how do you, what's another way to get that according to our constitution, which was, you know, uh, the caveat was created in order to placate the South, the Southern um, farmers is, well, if you can't have slaves, you can still have slaves if they are imprisoned. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's our current way of, of getting free labor is through the prison system. But another way that we get near free labor today is also through our immigration system. And um, so I think what I've learned in a lot of the research that I've been doing over the last several years um, through Freedom Road and then also for the book is that as a nation, our system is set up our laws our policies are set up to give us the cheapest possible labor um, for to uphold our economy as possible and that means stretching or even changing the laws in order to be able to give people less than what their work work is worth
0: i think context is so important especially when we start. Getting into this subject, you know, mm-hmm. um, just understanding who you are, because I think when we start talking about the impact, the historical factors that impact our interconnection, yes, um, it's because we don't know who we are, you mm-hmm. know, and so mm-hmm. I think that's important to start off this conversation like that, and mm. and and this need, and so let's just start from there. Um, why is there a need for interconnection um, as it relates to um, by PLC?
1: I think that the main reason that we need to have this conversation right now is because in this COVID moment, we actually have a breath. We have an opportunity to envision a new world, to envision mm-hmm. a new way of being in the world. And according to... Um, Well, the way that we have operated in this world for the last at least 1,600 years, um, 1,400 years actually, um, since Constantine, um, we have operated in the world in a way that uh, abides by the logic of empire and the logic of colonization and the logic of domination and the scripture itself, particularly the, the biblical concept of shalom, is not about domination, but rather about servanthood of the other, um, service, protection, and cultivation of all. And in order for us to envision a world where all can flourish, we as people of color really need to come to terms. We need to come to terms. We need to face. We need to reckon with The reality that not only have we been dominated by this, um, by the logics of of colonization and empire, um, and usually in our context by people who came from Europe. So they were European logics, European ways of looking at the world, European ways of creating human hierarchy that we have soaked in that hierarchy for 15, 16, 1400 years, depending on where you, where you begin your count. And so if we are going to imagine another way of being in the world, we have to see that. And we have to understand the, how the logics of whiteness work, because mm. we've been soaking in them. So we can't think that, yes, we have been oppressed, but we can't think that that, that oppressive logic is not also in us in the way that we deal not only with others, but also with ourselves. And so when I ask the question of what are the logics of whiteness, I always turn to Dr. Andrea Smith, who wrote an incredible, I think literally like breakthrough paper on this topic. It's And it's called um, the three pillars of whiteness, of, of colonization and whiteness or something like that. And mm-hmm. so you can Google it. It's very easily found um, in several forms. But in, in short, which her her theory is that there is also, by the way, this is a very fluid discussion. She is um, really um, open to everybody's input on this, and you know, mm-hmm. well, if if there are more than three logics, then let us know, you know, that kind of thing. Right. But I'll I'll share I'll share the ways that she has interacted with it first. Um, that what she says is the logic of whiteness. When, when whiteness as a construct, not white people, but when whiteness as a construct, which was, by the way, created in order to determine who can exercise dominion on land, when that mm-hmm. construct looks at other people groups, it sees other people groups in relationship to whiteness. So therefore, whiteness is the center of the universe and everything else is seen in relationship to it. And so when whiteness looks at people of African descent, whiteness sees people who were created to uphold their flourishing, white flourishing, through no-cost or low-cost labor. So when whiteness looks at Africa, whiteness sees slaves. When whiteness looks at people of African descent in America, whiteness sees people that they can imprison for cheap labor. Whiteness sees people that they should be conditioning to uphold the economy either as consumers or as ones who will pres- um, preserve the economy through their no-cost or low-cost labor in prison. When whiteness looks at, um, at people who are Asian or in the, in the academic sense, what they would call Orientalism, so it's not just Asian but also Middle Eastern, Um, what whiteness sees is it sees um, a people that is almost human, but not fully human. They're almost there, but they're not fully there. And as a result, they can be a formidable enemy against the full humans, which are the white people. And so as a result, they are the perpetual enemy that must be conquered. So whenever we look at Middle Eastern people in the Middle East, we think, conquer we think dangerous we think they are out to get us when we think of asians you know we kind of let them be until there's a there's a threat and then we must conquer them we must contain them in america the through um the japanese internments and then also the chinese exclusion act and Mm -hmm. and now what you see trump doing is actually completely xing out multiple nations in in the middle east for any kind of of um uh of naturalization, or even even travel into banning travel in his, his attempted Muslim ban. So, um, but when whiteness looks at indigenous peoples across the globe, and this, is, you can, it just bears itself out in history and current day, it sees two things. It sees land and it sees um, savage. So it's the savages living on land that should be in the hands of white people because white people are fully human, the only full humans who were ordained by God to exercise dominion on that land. So the savages must be cleared from the land, either through genocide or removal. And um, and the land then must be acquired, stolen bought by for a penny, that kind of thing, in order for that land to be cultivated by full humans. That's the logic of whiteness as it's applied to indigenous peoples all over the world. And then there's the logic of whiteness as it's applied to Latinx people, folks of Hispanic origin, in particular when we talk about in America and South America, Central America, um, that logic actually says, um, sees latinx people in several different logics because of the mestizaje nature of latinx people in other words that they are mixed with both europe in terms of spain africa and indigenous blood it actually how whiteness sees latinx is fluid if they if they present as more white then they actually get to be more white <laughs> in that mm-hmm. world but but then if they start talking with an accent or speak spanish well, it goes down a notch, and so then maybe that then maybe they 're seen as the foreigner who's almost human but not fully human, and so seen as a threat. We actually see that on our southern border with the talk of the wall, right like the wall they are the threat that needs the hordes that need to be kept out they are the ones who are um, who are disturbing our economy, taking our jobs and and also you know drug mules right. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, but if they are brown skin, if they are darker skin, usually what ends up happening is they are the ones who are um, brought into the country by our, by our policies in order to do the cheapest labor. So, so those logics are Mm -hmm. different logics are applied by whiteness to different groups. And so therefore um, white supremacy feels different. It interacts with different groups differently. And what we end up doing is we end up playing the oppression Olympics when we get into a room with each other. Well, I was more oppressed than you. Well, I, I was more oppressed than you. Oh no. Well, you know, and, but that's not the way that is not the way for us to move forward. If we are to actually leverage this COVID moment and actually, um, redeem the moment, then what we need to do is we need to be asking the question how have how have i internalized the logics of whiteness that's good how have i internalized it for myself how do i see myself in the same way that whiteness sees me how do i as an african american woman see myself as one that was created to offer cheap labor to the world okay mm-hmm. or no cost labor um, aka nonprofit industrial complex, okay? Did you know that the nonprofit industry employs more people of color than any other industry in the entire United States outside of the government itself? When we, in, if we internalized how whiteness sees us, um, for uh, for Asian Americans, how have Asian Americans, um, A- um, AAPI people, actually internalized the lens of whiteness on themselves? How have they seen themselves as the perpetual enemy, foreigner, the one to be distanced from? Um, how 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 within your Asian community are you distancing yourself from the actual people who are coming? newly like the 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 new immigrants from asia and making Mm. yourself um distancing yourself in order to feel more american is it possible to feel as american with an accent or without right Mm. is is, is it possible to feel as american with with a dinner table that that has um kimchi on it as much as it has hot dogs right Mm. is it is that is that as american um, for Latinx people, how have how within the Latinx community have um, we distanced ourselves, and I say ourselves because there's a one of one of the strains of in my family actually like I said, goes back to Puerto Rico and the Caribbean and um, and so they would consider—I'm not even sure they would consider themselves—but they are Black Latinx. Um, yeah. And so the, the 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 culture in that part of the family is very, very, very different from the culture in my mom's side of the family, which is like mm-hmm. African American back to the 1600s, right? So, um, right. So. So is there a way that within Latinx culture, within, Latinx, within the Latinx people, that there's been an internalization of, of the lens of whiteness on the self? Do you see um, people, is there a distancing of people who are uh, working in the fields more? Is there a distancing of people who are at the border, who are trying to get in? Do you see them as the enemy that must be um, kept at bay? That is a logic of an internalized logic of whiteness that is happening within us. Then the next step is for us to look and look at each other. How am I, African-American, viewing my Asian Middle Eastern brothers and sisters through the logics of whiteness? How have I seen them as the enemy that must be kept at bay, that must be conquered? How have yeah. I interacted with them um, in a way that says they are the perpetual foreigner. They are not American, right? Um, and right. and or they are not even fully human, right? Because that's also right. another another logic of whiteness. Um, how have I looked at indigenous people and completely erased them from the story altogether? By embracing, actually, by embracing the very and this goes to all of us who are not indigenous. Um, ha- how have I embraced the the narrative? of the untamed wilderness and we are all American and God ordained us to come and be a city on a hill and, and to come to this land. Well, how has that erased our indigenous aunties and uncles um, and grandmothers and great grandmothers from the story altogether? How has, it, how has it erased my need to actually ask permission to be on this land? From them because they were the ones who were actually brought to this land by God and, and given stewardship of the land that we took. Um, right. And right. so I think that if we're going to find a new way of being together in the world, then we have to understand how those logics work, how we have internalized them and how we have applied them to each other as people of color. Wow.
0: And I think that's so important because that's how you gave a lot of background, (laughs) a lot of background, but it's so neat because like one of the questions you, I mean, you answered several questions within that framework, Yeah. because when we start talking about the historical factors that impact our interconnection, uh, those are questions we have to ask ourselves individually as a group. Yeah, And examine those and, and where that's coming from and kind of dig up that root. Like it's like in order to move forward, you have to go back and under, yes. to understand in an effort to understand where we are today, Mm -hmm. we have to look at where we were yesterday, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's just so important on what you're saying. So, I mean, we have to flow with you um, as it relates to that. And I think that's so true. There's so much vertical work that has to happen in order for us to um, move this conversation forward, you know, because what you see is us really um, adopting um, the... The indifference and in adopting um the um the expression of the system of whiteness um yes. on each other you know yes, and right. and and we, we act it out, you know yeah. you see it we acted it out, we acted out in our families mm-hmm. uh, with comments that are being said, you know one of the things we're working with the youth now and you know some of the comments even from the the students of of color, you know, they're saying, you know, this is a major issue, but I'm also having to address this in, you know, my friendships and, 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 um, this in my family, because, you know, with this, you know, with things happening, we are saying, you know, um, really racist comments, you know, toward other people of color, you know? Yeah, and so
1: yeah. those are the, the ways that, that, that whiteness has categorized our society, and has structured our society. These are the structures we've lived within. So I think that, that any um, any process would have to do uh, several things. The process would, first of all, have to be communal. Um, we would have to go back within our communities to do deep examination of how we have interacted, how we have taken in these logics of ourselves, and then also how have Uh, do an interrogation of how our communities have applied those, those false logics to others within the community, within society. And then we would have to come together in communication and confess and repent and, um, and decide on a new way of actually uh, a new way of, of being in the world. And, And I hate to keep saying that, but it's true. I think that we would have to decide together that whiteness as a construct doesn't work for us anymore, and so we're no longer going to use it. In fact, we're, not, we're no longer going to even use the category of race at all, because race as a construct was created to determine one thing on this land that we call America, who has the call and capacity, the, the divine call and the capacity to exercise dominion on this land, And that's why whiteness was created and blackness and everything else that was created along with it was created in relationship to whiteness and blackness. And so, um, and that's what we're talking about power. That's why I'm not, that's, it's a good reason for us again, to make the distinction between race and culture. Culture cannot be erased. Culture is from God. Culture is inside of us. Um, right. ethnicity cannot be erased because exactly. it is the, the experience of people groups who move across land over long periods of time and the ways that they're shaped by that land by their experiences on that land um, and nationality is just you know what, what what's this what, what what passport do you hold in your pocket right like that's your nationality mm-hmm. but when you talk about race that is the only reason race exists is to is to determine who holds power so i think mm-hmm. that ultimately what we're really going to have to decide if we are going to live into that radical connected vision is to actually renounce race as as i mean altogether to say i will no longer i will no longer live according to the logic of of race according to the logic of whiteness and why did i just Make those two things synonymous because whiteness was the first construct of race. So if you dislodge whiteness, you no longer have race. If you erase whiteness as a construct, race doesn't exist because race only exists because whiteness exists as a construct. It was the first of, of everything.
0: So I know people are listening to this and they're like, okay, so... How do we do this in a mm-hmm. racialized society yeah. with the power that we have now? Like, you know, mm-hmm. like how do we begin to denounce this? And I, I know what some of the work we do and some of the work you do, that education is a key part of this, because oh, I yeah. know there were just things, gems that you dropped is we don't know each other. We don't know each other's story. And so that also creates barriers and obstacles. We don't know the indigenous story here on this land and why we should um, value it and honor it. We don't know the Asian American story and why we should respect it, you know, and and the same vice versa. So like, how, how could we, how can we do something like this in a racialized society like this, this just inherent in um, the DNA of who we are.
1: and it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not. And I think we have to get out of that. It's not inherent in the DNA of who we are. We were, we created this construct, which means we can, we can disable it. <laughs> we can. <laughs> deconstruct it. If you it
0: was. Know, we made it up, we can. Take it down. <laughs>
1: That's really true. If we, if it's yeah. constructed, it means it can be deconstructed. Right. It's, it's not of God. It is of human beings. If it was of God, we might have a hard time because God would come back and like hit us back. But it's not. It is human beings. We made this. We can unmake it. And so what what I would actually, the way that I have been working at this and actually counseling people to do it is to first learn your own actual story. I think that I honestly think everybody in this country should have an account on Ancestry.com, 23andMe, AfricanAncestry.com. Um, you should, if you are Native American, you need to really understand the story of your people. If you don't already, maybe you grew up apart from the people um, from your nation. If they were put on a reservation, if you live in an urban center, which actually most Native people do live in urban centers around the country, not on reservations. Um, right. But then you know, if you are disconnected, get Connected again, get connected to your story. That's the first connection that has to happen It's connection to your own story. And because I think that the thing is what we don't, what we tend to think of is we think of history as a, a list of wars or a list of presidents or a list of inventions that happen at a particular time, but we don't realize that it's our history is our ancestors' lives. Like Mm -hmm. our ancestors are the ones who actually made the decisions that made the history. My ancestor joining the great migration made her one of the 7 million people of African descent who went North during the great migration. The great migration was not, was not written by somebody on high. The great migration was written by 7 million individuals who made a choice to flee terror and went North. That's how the great migration, but we read it as, okay, this is the great migration as if it's like this static thing that, you know, it was just going to happen no matter what, because that's just the way that it was. No, people made choices. So we need to ask the question, who are we, who, who are our ancestors? What were the choices they made? What were they facing in their lives? How did they overcome how did, they, how did they not overcome? How were they overwhelmed by those choices? What were the choices that were made from on high in terms of law and policy and structures um, that impacted their lives? See, I don't mm-hmm. think until we do that, and I'm not right. just saying people of color, I'm actually also including people of European descent in this. Yeah um, that until we actually understand how our, I mean our own story, then we can't have a sense of who we are in our, in the present story and where we mm-hmm. should be in the present story. Like one of the yeah. things that's blown my mind is the, is the reality that for most of the people, most of the people of European descent who came into the United States, particularly in the 19th century, right? So 19th century, they're coming in pretty much right after the declaration of independence and this the revolutionary war. It's a brand new country. And they're asking the question, the reason they came was to flee persecution or to flee famine. It's one of two things, either oppression or poverty. They were fleeing in order to come here, um, or they got here in order to flee those two things. Well, when they got here, they got here in the context of a racialized society. So they had to choose. And when they chose, who in the world is going to choose to be a non-human being? Nobody, nobody's going to choose that. So everybody, when they came here, was trying to be white. Why? Because that's the construct that the legal framework provided to be counted as fully human. So throughout the entire 19th century, all the way up into the mid um, 20th century, you had people going all fighting all the way to the Supreme Court to be counted as white including yes. Asian Americans. In fact, the last one that I saw was in the 1920s, where a Japanese American was fighting to be seen as white. And the, mm. the Supreme Court said, uh, you ain't white, go back down where you belong, right? They patted that guy right back down, swatted him down. Um, and why? Why would he want to be counted as white? Well, because at that time, you actually had the Chinese Exclusion Act going on. And it was it was causing Um, It was not, and I realize he's Japanese, he's not Chinese, but there was, uh, there was hatred of all Asians that was um, permeating that time. So why would he want to be counted as Asian at a time when Asians were hated? Mm -hmm. So he tried to be counted as white because whites were the only humans in this land. So
0: we see that Seven, so, I mean, right? so much in our history. Um, I, I read a story um, of a man from India. And I mean, yes. even some, um, mm. yeah, what did you say his name was? Oh, I don't know his oh, I name. Thought said, I, thought, <laughs> okay, I thought you said his name. I was like, oh, I, I can't think of his name right now. But um, we see that even today when it comes to the census and we're, you know, in these this this construct, um, mm. you know, because a lot of countries have also been colonized um yes. that mindset also follows um, groups of people here as they immigrate um, to America. And you see that some people, although they are considered people of color in this country, um, they still identify themselves as white because, like you said, who wants to be identified with another group that's not seen as fully human or right. a group that is not going to like the, you know the system is not set up that that they may flourish. Also, you right know? and see
1: these. This is the way we've internalized it, right? So it also comes out in in the colorism that you find in the African American yeah. community, and that and it's funny because that actually didn't exist. Colorism did not exist in the way that it does now until right. after the Civil War. I found out again through the research that before wow. the civil war it wasn't a, a color line it was the line of free or not free right so mm-hmm. those who were free ha- they were they were considered like well almost Almost full humans they were they were able to vote, they were able to own land, they were able to right. do everything they, anybody else could do, but they were still not seen as fully white, right but they were they were seen as above those who were enslaved. but after the abolition of slavery, there's no longer that demarcation so within the African American context, we then began to de- make that make another demarcation of a hierarchy, and that hierarchy was a long skin color. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and that carried all the way through the 20th century, and and for many still exists today. So I think yeah. that the question that we really, so I mean, just on a really practical level, what I would suggest to your listeners is that where you are sitting right now, close your eyes, mm-hmm. close your eyes, and I want you to imagine a world. Well, first of all, I want you to see the lie, the lie that we have been told. See it, visualize it for yourself in whatever way helps you. The lie of human hierarchy, where whiteness is on the top, blackness is on the bottom as being non-human, and others come into that hierarchy somewhere on that hierarchy, but the rest are neither fully non-human or fully human, right? So That's that's the hierarchy that was established within the United States. Now what I want you to do is to erase that. Just take an eraser and erase it. Erase it all together in your mind's eye. And now I want you to now imagine another way of organizing ourselves in the world. What if instead of a ladder, we saw ourselves in a circle holding hands, that we are connected and we are in a circle, meaning we are all equally human And we are all equally called to exercise stewardship of this world, of this land. We are all equally called to exercise agency. But within this land called the United States of America, we actually have elders, ones who were here first, ones who God actually established as the stewards of this land. What would it look like for us to center them? What would it look like for us to actually allow for the way that they would like to do things to be the center, to guide us, at least for a period of time? What would it look like for, for us to ask them, what is it, how do you say things should be, and then to follow? And then for people of African descent, um, what would it look like for the rest, for everyone who, is, who has abided by and lived according to and benefited from? Um, the construct of whiteness in relationship to people of African descent, whether it is that your family actually did own slaves, ens- ha- your family enslaved human beings that were descendant of Africa. Um, if, if that was your family, then then hold that. What would it look like for you to, to repent of the, the taking of dominion from people groups? What would it look like for you to, to recognize their dominion, to recognize their capacity to exercise agency. What would it like for you to say to them, what will it take for things to be made well for you and to listen and then do it? That's what it looks like to then shift the power, to put the power back into the hand of the one from whom it was taken. Mm -hmm. Um, And the same goes for Asian-Americans. From those of Chinese descent who descend all the way back into the early 1800s, all the way to the very newest um, immigrants and refugees that are coming into our nation and African um, refugees and immigrants that have come into our nation um, and become American. And we can't go back. I think that that's actually... It's, it's clear not only uh, from African-American scholars, but also from Native American scholars. I don't think anybody now is actually looking to make it what it was. It's not possible. It just is not possible. But we can shift the power dynamics so that we live within the context of a circle and not a ladder.
0: Mm, that's so good. Whew. well you've given us a lot to think about as it relates to this conversation, and if there can be um just solidarity among people of color, I think this mm-hmm. is a a really good you know step toward um what true inter Connection could really look like. It starts with you. I mean, just when I'm talking about this work of racial healing, I always tell people like, you cannot lead people where you're not willing to go yourself personally. And that's true. How this work starts with you. And I think what you're calling people to do and, and to examine and to um, go back um, is so important in order for mm-hmm. us to be able to come together. Um, so I know um, things are you know with COVID, we're trying to make sense of all of this. Um, this too is tied into that conversation.
1: So I think when we when we look at the current situation around COVID, We have to understand that that also comes in a context. And and it's really, it was deep, right, when we began to realize that it's people of African descent and brown people, people of Latinx descent, that are the ones suffering the most, dying the most from COVID. It doesn't mean that we are genetically predisposed, though, or there are some people who are doing that research to see if that's true. But I think that doctors are saying very clearly, these are the folks who are coming in with more pre-existing conditions like diabetes, heart disease, um, uh, and and, um, and other other ailments, obesity, that actually make it so that they are more vulnerable to to attack by COVID. COVID can get at their system easier because they're coming in weaker. Well, then you have to okay. So are they just weaker? I mean, look, there's been a lot of research over the last couple of decades that has shown definitively, no, we are not weaker. Um, What we are is we are a people that has had systematically incinerators put in our communities, bus depots put in our communities where they idle for hours and then put all these particulates into the air that we ingest and then have more asthma, which then creates a situation where COVID can take over our lungs easier um, we have been placed in poor housing through the um, Federal um, Housing Association calculation that they made um, uh, when, when, in 1935 when they actually created the, the calculation that determined what housing or, sorry, land value would be. Um, they, the, the calculation was if you have even one person of African descent on your in your community, your entire community's land was worth less. And so, what did that do? It created people like black. That's what white flight was. White flight was l- fleeing from lower housing value that was that was created by the federal government. And so, and that has never really fully been recovered from. Even though they they out, they outlawed that in the 1960s, they never actually then upped the value of the land. So, what do you have? You have you have slum lords, and you have depleted neighborhoods, and you have under-resourced neighborhoods to this day. You have food deserts where people can't find within a five mile radius, um, healthy food. So when all you have to eat in your community is Coca-Cola and and Cheetos, then you, or soy, corn, and sugar, then you Mm -hmm. are going to be obese. And you are going to get diabetes at a higher rate. And when you have diabetes at a higher rate, you are going to die from COVID at a higher rate. Mm -hmm. So that's what we have to, again, we need to take a look at and and rectify in our community. Again, COVID has given us an opportunity to make things right. It has shown us the way things have been that are wrong systematically. And now we need to go in and change the laws, change the zoning. From mm. having our neighborhoods be the zoning areas for fast food as opposed to supermarkets, mm. right? Change, so the, right? Change the the way that we calculate land um, value from being um, um, is it historically black neighborhood? We have outlined redlining, but it's still happening. Um, yes. So, so there you go. That that's what I would say. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's so good. That's so good. And that's a conversation that I think. That's really being illuminated when we start seeing these disparities. Because we don't have this historical narrative, we disconnect it from the things that are happening right now. And it's important for us to go back so that we can understand what's happening right now um, and not attach it always to behavior in what we You know, Um, so I think that's good. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Thank you. And so we
0: don't know what the remainder of this year is going to look like. We don't know. But there's things that you can begin doing right now in this in this moment, um, you know, during this season to really um, start thinking about this conversation. So, Lisa, thank you so much for joining me and having this layered complex mm-hmm. conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you if you haven't read um Lisa's book, um The Good Gospel, get that. We'll make sure that that's in the show notes. The um, Very Good Gospel information. The mm-hmm. Very Good Gospel. Let's let's make sure <laughs> that we put The Very Good God. Oh, uh, yeah. Very good- Good gospel on that. And so we'll make sure all that information is in the um, show notes. And Lisa, how can people follow you and find out more about what you're doing?
1: Oh, that's so great. Um, well, you can follow me on social media all over the place. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, Lisa S. Harper on Instagram and Twitter, and just my name, Lisa Sharon Harper on Facebook, also, um, come on over to my website um, at lisasharonharper.com or freedomroad.us, which is the consulting group that is dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Um, and we also have now the Freedom Road Institute, which has webinars every single day of the week, it seems now, um, that there are new webinars popping up and you're absolutely welcome to, to partake. Um, in fact, we have one that's going on now that you might be interested in. It's decolon- how to decolonize the Bible. And um, we just had our first um, session, our our first webinar session on that. And anybody who signs up can actually get the video recording of any of the previous sessions so you can be caught up and then join us on the next live one. They're happening through the rest of this month. So, and then of of course, the last place I'll just say, this is the Freedom Road podcast, which is really where a lot of people journey with us from month to month. Um, That podcast comes out the first week of every month.
0: Thank you so much for taking this time, and we appreciate all the work that um, you're doing and you are continuing to do. Having these hard conversations, that's a part of it. That's a part of our growth. So I'm just grateful for you and for your leadership.
1: Thank you for listening. For more bridge-building resources, visit our website at be the bethebridge.com.